vamos para que todos sepan Alright, what's up mi gente, it's your, it's your boy Marco Rojas here with another episode of Aquí Estamos. We have a faith leader, but a community activist, a leader in Central Valley, Pastor Nelson Rabel. Pastor Nelson, thank you so much for just taking the time to just a little bit of just to uh, share your wisdom and just your experience, you know, here in the Central Valley, y también Puerto Riqueño también. So if you, if you don't mind, go ahead and uh, just talk about yourself for a little bit. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. Um, and thank you for uh, for the opportunity. So I I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. Um, my mother and Wilda Gonzalez and my father, Narciso Ravel. So my, my mom um, was an Afro-Caribbean woman. Um, and we, so I have Afri the African descent uh, blood and many Puerto Ricans have, of course, so in the caribbean blackness is celebrated in, in, in so many aspects there's also anti-blackness no doubt because of the spanish uh, conquest and um some of the negativity assigned to 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 the black culture so it's kind of like living in, in that uh, intersection of those two realities celebrating blackness at the same time there's anti-blackness Uh, but it's more celebrated, obviously, more tolerated and, and sometimes even welcome, even more so than here, for example, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. or Europe. Uh, so my father was a, um, um, might say, a very politically active. He had a, a group that advocated for Puerto Rican independence. Um, my mom was also uh, in tune with that. And that's how they met. Uh, so in, in my particular case, when you mention I'm a religious leader, but also activist, that's in my blood. <laughs> From My mom was a lawyer. My father was an activist, political activist, to the point where he actually had a, like I said, a group um, that was politically active um, and uh, advocating for Puerto Rican independence and very anti um, uh American policies where they were um, interjecting in other nations, particularly Latin America mm -hmm. uh, or Africa in that sense. So so I grew up with that acknowledgement, that knowledge that, uh, you know, the United States is a great country, but it also has a history of uh, exporting their, uh, you know, their wars, their domination, and, and, and the uh, exploitation of other countries is also part of the history of this country, just like it did with um, African-Americans, Native Americans, uh, Latinx, indigenous people. Uh, so so we're, we're, we are well aware of that history. And therefore, I always have said, when I argue with people who tend to be more, uh, you know, we might say, this type of patriot that doesn't want to seize everything perfect with the country, that the best patriots or are the ones that see the country as it is and works to make it better, not the country as it should be already, but doesn't really work for, for a better country. Mm -hmm. But the, the two patriots really acknowledge the, the, the flaws and the, the growing ages of the country without Uh, trying to diminish them. Yeah. And I think in that sense, I grew up in that environment 
of a constant uh, awareness. And then on top of that, I became, I'm a Lutheran pastor. Lutherans are uh, a Protestant, we're the first Protestant denomination. Um, uh, so we come out of the Roman Catholic Church. That's why we look, we're very similar to the Roman Catholic Church in some in some things, not in others. But uh, we, we are, uh, we have a saying that goes like this, that church is always reforming itself. So even religiously, I find a, a tradition, religious tradition, Christian tradition that emphasizes the need for the church to constantly be renovating, reforming, uh, reshaping itself in order to be more faithful to its message about the love of God. And though in that sense, I think both in my upbringing and in my religious life, <laughs> there's a, a marriage there yeah. um, of the need for constant reform. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, every, you touched on a lot of things right now, and I'm going to get a little bit more in detail, but I know that you, um, you at first you focused on that anti-blackness and not just in Puerto Rico, of course, because the Spanish conquest and all that. But I know I, I kind of want to talk about that because I know you are, you know, Afro Latino at the end of the day. How was that for you, you know, going through seminary? Because I know seminary is, you know, here, especially here in the U.S., when I, I talk to pastors and seminaries, it's predominantly white, very mm -hmm. strong or strong con conservative ideal so how was that for you when you're completely the opposite you know well i i have to say the the denomination that i belong to is the evangelical lutheran church in america is the widest denomination in the country mm -hmm. now politically at least in, in our social statements we are very progressive from uh, being lbtqi plus affirming uh, very strong anti, uh, uh, you know, racism statements and, and so on and so forth. But the truth is, we are still a predominantly white congregation, about 96% white and barely 4% non-white. So that's a, that, that's a reality. So my experience in seminary was actually not as bad as, uh, um, as others have experienced. Maybe in more conservative seminaries doesn't mean that I didn't have some issues, but I guess the the fact that I w it was in Philadelphia, my seminary, I, I went to the Lutheran Theological, Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So it was located in uh, Mount Airy, which is a predominantly uh, like black um, community. And there's also uh, a little diverse. Uh, it has a history of being um, integrated since the 1950s and, and etc so so it it, it 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 was a community that was located in a somewhat more uh tolerant and in an open and welcoming um society to the point where the history of that region it was the uh jewish women who 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 fought against the the people who were coming with uh, like some of the real estate agents that were saying, "Oh, the blacks are coming," and it was Jewish women who stood against them, said, "No, no, no, we're gonna we're gonna stay here. We're gonna you know support the newcomers." And so, uh, so that's kind of the spirit of that, of that region. And the seminary, to a certain degree, and because of the great leadership that I had at the time, uh, it, it it supported that. And Philadelphia is a stronghold for Lutheranism in 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 the sense of um, 
uh, having uh, African-American churches and uh, connections with other African-American traditions, the Lutheran Church uh, having you know, connections to the AME Church and other uh, African Methodist Episcopal. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that it, it was not a as, um, let me put it this way, the one seminary I was told I should go from other pastors I went to uh, Philadelphia and how their experience, how positive it was, was Philadelphia. Mm. So that doesn't mean there were not issues. There were issues, and we can talk about them, but it was not as, let's say, pervasive. What was that common issue that you've seen in Philadelphia? Well, I, I think it's always the, it's something that, uh, similar to what Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King used to say about the the biggest threat to any uh, uh, advancement of people of color is always the uh, the white moderate, mm -hmm. um, not so much a person that is KKK or you know completely on the French in terms of full of hatred. My experience in seminary in my denomination and also in in the ELC, in the LCA as a, as a whole, my denomination and also here in Lodi and in Stockton is that the white moderates are really, you know, it's a group of people and, why, and moderates in, in general are, are really the ones that get in the way for, for advancements to happen. And the problem is that when you are a moderate, uh, it, it's kind of like saying, well, we have to incrementally get better. Right. Not to insult or not to uh, put it at odds the people who are financing the institution or providing support and, and, and at this and, and while that is happening within the church within society and in, in any level of human life that you 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 apply the same uh, uh, you know right, you apply the same the same uh, reality which it does right is that the people who are suffering the injustice never really get to see it fully realized, mm -hmm. or at least closely realized to what they're hoping for. And, and that's why I think that it's very easy for, for Caucasians who are in positions of leadership, or even people of color who get to a position of leadership to then, it's very easy for them to say, oh, wait a minute, let's take it easy, let's hold up, you know, kind of like the, the, <laughs> the impetus, the, the, the drive to get make things better, because the, they are already in a position of power. Right. So, so that's a challenge, right? So that, that's I, why. And I have noticed, I mean, obviously I've seen white moderates not take that step of faith, but I, now I've, I've, you know, we're in 2021, we're seeing a lot more people of color um, getting into power and I've seen that stagnant. And what do you say to those, I mean, los Latinos, los, um, you, you know, black folks or Asians or, you know, and you, and, and you see this and you're like, like, um, this steady way of uh, like of trying to progress on issues like as a faith leader, what do you like? How do you motivate them to say, you know, let's keep working forward and progress? I think the challenge will always be uh, there's always an economic issue. Uh, being white adjacent or close to whiteness and power, and which is the case for Latinos, for Asians, for Latinos, African Americans. Native Americans, whatever the, the group, uh, LBTQI plus right. as well, any vulnerable group that, that sees as a goal 
uh, white at, <laughs> being white at, at adjacent mm -hmm. or being okay with just you know getting to power without really making any changes that's going to be the problem so the question is there's a reality i would say this is a reality people need to eat people need to like you know provide for their families at the same time there are basic uh human rights uh, uh civil rights issues that we can work for Give you an example here in our region. Uh, so we are underrepresented in the political strata. Let's talk about Latinos. Latinos are th almost 40% of the population in California, the largest minority group. Mm -hmm. And there's no real, that, that those numbers do not, trans, do not translate into the po political structure. Right. In every, not only government, but institutions, churches, et cetera. To give you an example, in my own tradition, uh, all bishops of my of the Lutheran Church in California are Caucasian. Mm -hmm. I mean, two granted, two are uh, members of the LGBTQI plus community, uh, but the other one, which is further south, uh, it's uh, close to in the San Diego area. Again, a Caucasian man in in a state that has so much diversity. Right. You know, whiteness is seen as the only possible representative of what we're um you know what we could be or aspire to be and, and that is problematic and i think our church and, and society as a whole need to address that issue the same happens i mentioned the church our church is an example the same happens with um you know in government right a hundred percent hundred percent the same yeah. thing happens in, in institutions that we work for institutions uh the school district the local uh, city board uh city council uh, school districts, uh, you know, you name it, and um, hospitals. So it gives you an idea of where the the the, the work needs to be um, uh, done in terms of edu education. And it's not access. And when people use the word access, it, it's problematic. It's not access. Access is, well, there's a door there. You can access it. But okay, once you get to the door, it means the door is there. Mm -hmm. The question is, can you get there? It's not a matter of access. Mm -hmm. It's like saying, oh, healthcare access. Well, healthcare can be accessible in the sense that it's there, but can people afford it? Right. Or is it even good? Right. Exactly. That's another question <laughs> in terms of quality. So I, I think we have to, you know, all those issues. I'll give you an example here in Lodi. So Lodi, the school board, really doesn't represent the 40% of Latinas who, who, who live here. Mm -hmm. Uh, the allocation of funding, the program, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the curriculum. Uh, I wonder, I mean, you work for in, in, in Stockton. Right. I wonder what's the case down there, right? So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? Begin, yeah. Uh, so I, it, it, look at the county, right? The, the, the county board does not represent the county in the sense of racial diversity. We, we are truly led by... You know, people who are still probably living in the 1950s. Right. And that's what I wanted to talk about. And I want to save that, the idea that we're, we want uh, in relation to Lodi and the 50s, right? But I do want to mm -hmm. talk a few more things um, because you did touch on something that was important, right? In education. And, you know, you talked, like I said, I want to hold on to that anti-blackness and the progressive, like the history, because we want to teach that history. También. Porque if we don't, the kids will never know. They won't even know their true identical uh, their identity. And I, I don't, I don't know. Like, 
how do you feel when you know curriculum is designed where world history starts when all those Europeans came here? How do you yeah. feel about history when it only in U.S. history when it only identifies the progressions of you know what uh, you know Caucasians made here in the United States and with a little bit of touch of Cesar Chavez and Martin Luther King, <laughs> you know how do you feel about that? Because you know you had kids go through school. Like how important is that to teach these kids this? Because there is a lot of conservatives and even white moderates that are saying no, no, no. We don't want to talk about anti-racist ideas. We don't want to talk about um, us, uh the history of of slavery because it's like we don't want to bring that because that's racist but how i just want to hear your opinion on that i think in my experience and in my most recent experience the problem with leadership and again caucasian moderate leadership or latinos or people of color who might be moderate mm -hmm. and they're, what they're really trying to avoid is a conflict right and it's kind of like going through trying to maintain things the way they are and not ruffle any feathers here's a problem right that we went through 2020 and before 2020 we went through 2016 right and the years after that and before that i can keep pointing to dates particular dates that have made the awareness and the unveiling of the inequalities in this country even more uh, visible for the people to see, especially our young people and uh, even people of color who did, did not have that political consciousness mm -hmm. before. And now, for me as a religious leader, not to address those issues would be, uh, I, I would be a hypocrite. Mm. And I think that's part of the problem. Like we don't want, and I understand, it, again, like I said before, we all want to eat. We all want to have our house. We want to put our kids through college, all of that. So th that's the reality of why this is not moving any faster, because we have a lot of religious leaders who are so concerned about the income, right? right. <laughs> I'm talking about the religious leader, uh, but also political uh, leaders who are in positions of power. They don't want to lose that power. Uh, and they they are conscious about how much they, they can push. Mm -hmm. So I guess the only... Uh, the only way, whether it's in the school district to you know, mention your, the, the issue you, you, you brought up about what we're teaching, we, I think we really have to be clear and, and, and not uh, use platitudes to talk about what white supremacy, what racism, what white privilege is, because on, on, and you know, the so-called uh, issues that the, the, some groups within the more conservative side of society are arguing against, they're using the so-called uh, critical, critical race right. theory as the big el cuco, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we call in Puerto Rico, we call it cuco, the boogeyman, yeah. right? Cucuy, <laughs> yeah. So they're using that that concept as, well, this, we have to be afraid of that because it's gonna bring negativity, kids will feel bad. You know what, the reality is that if we are if we are able to teach our kids the truth without platitudes, which, which I think the platitudes are the, sadly, what I've seen most religious leaders in this area use is a very vague notion of love. It's a love devoid of justice and equity. Mm. It's a peace devoid of 
the reality of inequality. You know, they're talking about those concepts, but they're talking about those concepts from the perspective of power, from the perspective of leaving things the way they are, and from the perspective of not um, disturbing the, the balance of power right. as it is, mm -hmm. which is obviously unequal for the vast majority of people who are, in this case, people of color in the, in the state, to, to, or the, our city of uh, Lodi, or down in Stockton, or uh, the county. And we can go as far as, obviously, the whole nation. Right. Uh, eventually, the whole nation will be a nation of immigrants and people of color. I mean, basically, that's the movement, right? That's the demographic movement that's going that way. And the fear that some people have regarding losing power, losing that privilege is really what is driving all this uh, rhetoric of hatred, anti-immigrant sentiments, an increase of anti-blackness and um, and also a, a, a big uh, push to hold on to power and to avoid people of color to get, get getting even to the uh, voting polls. Mm. So Georgia, you know, <laughs> Alabama, mm. some of the states, uh, Texas, uh, Arizona. So you, you have all the states trying now to, because, you know, in the case of Georgia, you know, there was a big switch, a uh, big uh, uh, um big change right. in terms of the policies and the politics. Uh, and, and I think it was a demographic change, basically. Mm -hmm. So all the all the states that were relying on, on whiteness and in, in some respects, the white moderates to hold on the political change. Now they're, they're finding that even places like Georgia are at risk mm -hmm. of losing that. So that containment feel that they were that were able to use before it's starting to crumble and sadly not sadly i mean sadly for them yeah, but yeah. <laughs> thank i think it's good for the whole country that that's happening because now it, there's not a place in this country that eventually will be touched by this wave right. california is just the future of the, of the u.s right. Now, but here, here's a word of caution for us as people of color uh, that obviously we do not we do not become that which we hate, which is oppressors. Mm -hmm. And I say the word hate not in terms of hating the oppressor, but hating the oppression. Mm -hmm. I hate the oppression. I don't hate the oppressor in this, as a human being, as a fellow human being. But but I do hate oppression, and I think we have to truly be mindful of that that we do not become exactly what we hate. Uh, and the only way to do that is by not using the same tactics that uh, the white supremacists have used mm. and racists have used. Uh, I think we have to provide for truly open, uh, an open society where truly everyone is, has the, um, and I don't like to use the word opportunity. The opportunity is like, well, you have a chance. Well, a chance is not, not everybody gets it. You know, you may have a chance. We, we both have a chance to win the lottery, but we may not, never yeah. <laughs> right. win it. Right. It's more than, more than opportunity. It's actually, um, you know, the, the, the creation of, of a society where human beings are able to participate fully 
in the economic life, in the social life, in the political uh, life, in the decision-making life, in the education, how we educate our kids. So, so, and the only way to do that is by truly opening up, you know, society, uh, particularly particularly to people of color. Like the measure of our success will be how much, you know, vulnerable groups have access to and and are participating, mm -hmm. really participating in the life of our society and in this decision making process. Yeah. I was so churches, societies that do not have that, right, that ability, I think eventually will will continue to to decline. And that kind of touches on the next question que te iba a preguntar because you compared, you know, you talk about opportunity, voting access, all these access que, you know, people of color, just historically speaking, have been marginalized and never had the opportunity to partake in. But you made the comparison one time. I remember that you said Lodi is the equivalency of the South. I was mm -hmm. I wanted to just hear that from you, you know, just go a little bit deeper in that because I see it, you know, you kind of go there and, and, and it's it's a sad reality porque we have such a huge Latino uh, base out there. But you see just the attitudes over there as well. So if you don't mind just sharing a little bit about about that. Well, but I, but I want to expand that. It, it's not just Lodi. I think Stockton. I think the whole county. Okay. In yeah. many respects, I mean, we are becoming more and more diverse. Uh, there's more uh, openness, but the power structure, and that that's what we're talking about. It may be more. I, I we can't even compare it to Ferguson, mm. in the sense of. Uh, large population of people of color, but not represented in the power structure, in the policing, in, in the education. In, and that's really the problem. It's not, so population wise, we may be, you know, the large majority, but then in terms of the, who, who creates the policy, who defines the policy, we're not part of that mm. right. as, a, as communities. Yesterday, when I saw the DA from San Joaquin County indicting those two police officers uh, out of the four that, um, you know, brutalized Devin Carter, a uh, young 17 year old man, a uh, young, young man who, African American young man who was uh, brutalized by, by these police officers. Uh, it was interesting to me to see how uh, the DA was asked, how many in your you know career have you indicted? Well, uh, these are the first, <laughs> kind of like, you know, and I, I think when you look at the optics of, of who the DA is and the optics of the county, you know, in terms of who is holding power or what kind of ideology do they um, have about the role of law and order, kind of like the, um, you might say, the inf favorability so it's kind of like law and order is infallible like the pope mm. in the in the roman catholic tradition mm -hmm. where you know everything the pope says is law and that's it <laughs> well you know i think we the only one who's infallible is god for as a right. religious leader that's what i can say not a single human being and i think that's part of the problem when people doesn't matter what you do in life you start ascribing divine attributes to anyone who is down here on earth whether it's a police officer a judge a, a pastor a priest doesn't matter but those attributes theologically speaking should be only given to god 
and to ascribe to the nation, to the political apparatus, to law and order, to the military, to our, uh, even our constitution, kind of like divine attributes is problematic because again, it goes back to what I said before. It doesn't allow you to see the flaws. Mm-hmm. Now you assume they're perfect. And that's the, the other problem with whiteness. Whiteness is in, in its own self-understanding is infallible. Mm-hmm. And it does not allow for uh, challenge. And what I have found is people, <clears throat> my experience is that people who have, who are not, <laughs> they may think they are, but they, they don't seem to be aware of their own white privilege and white supremacy, what they're really doing by not acknowledging those two uh, things is that they're really ascribing to their whiteness a sense of being infallible. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And, and it goes back to the, what, and, and let's be honest, I know people might not like what I'm going to say now. When every time you hear any politician or anyone say, it is different. I think in other countries it's different when they say, oh, we're number one or whatever. Right. But in this country, America is the greatest, the greatest force for good. And then you, you connect that to the history, right? What they're really saying is connected more to whiteness than anything else. Uh, there may be some people that may want to make that more inclusive, diverse. But the reality is that that concept has its roots on white supremacy. Mm. Uh, I have never heard, you know, that same type of, uh, I mean, yeah, you have empires that Roman empire, you know, that they claim all these attributes about <laughs> themselves. Like, right. You can only ascribe to a deity, right. To a God or right. <laughs> something. Fine. But when you ascribe those same, that same sense, mm-hmm. I mean, I never forget, I'm going to criticize now a Democrat. So you Democrats out there, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness because <laughs> I, I was, I was uh, appalled by it. Um, one time, the way um, Hillary Clinton uh, described the U.S. was as indispensable nation. The only thing indispensable is air and water. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and then with Donald Trump, and let me now give a black eye to a loving black eye to a Republican friends. Uh, when Donald Trump talked about America first, it's the same thing. It's just a corruption. It's white supremacy on steroids. Mm. Uh, it's just because that white that America first is really white first, mm-hmm. and the policies and and what was proclaimed, what was. You know, it, it really, you have to be very naive not, not to, or not knowledgeable of human history to realize what that really meant. Right, because every policy that was intact, it did not benefit everyone that we, who, whom we are talking about. We're talking about exactly. the corporations, the business CEOs, mm-hmm. who are, what is it, 95% uh, um, Caucasian white folks. So it's like, yeah, it's... It's uh, I when I hear that too, and now I'm curious because we 
I've driven here in Stockton and I've driven um, in Lodi as well. And one of those like flags that we always see is these uh, Blue Lives Matter flags and these um, American flags. But I don't see it as patriotic. And I don't know, is it, I, I feel like right now in these times, I actually, I mean, my my life, I've played for the U.S. team uh, for mm-hmm. sports. And so... Mm-hmm. At one point, you know, I, I felt so patriotic to the flag, but also was naive because I was growing up in this curriculum and not knowing the true knowledge of history, right? Mm-hmm. I even say the same thing for the California flag. For those that are listening, like that bear flag, it is an oppression flag towards Mexicanos because this was, you know, right before the U.S. conquered it, it was, you know, land of Mexico and, you know, these drunk um, Caucasian men came in with a bear flag and said, this is our land and they started killing folks. And so I think flags have a, a major in play too. And so I hear you and you're just like touching a sensitive part, like not sensitive, but like a part of me, like, it's like, you know, this is so true because it's, we say America first and America is the best nation, but comparing it to what, you know, an educate, yeah. we're number one in military and mass incarceration. So we focus on, that's, that's number one that we focus on that. So that's what makes us the best country, right? I guess, because we can incarcerate people very fast and very quickly and we can yeah. bomb nations. Yeah, and that's it. But but not number one in in, in education, healthcare. Not even in entrepreneurship. Not even like how report happened. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like I, I I was looking at a stat the other day because I was like, a lot of people tell me U.S. is the best nation in the world, and I'm like, okay, so let's look at the statistics. But you know, when it comes to the things of our future generations, we're not up there as number one. We're not even in the top ten. But when it comes to entrepreneurship, you know which we say we're so capitalist in the country, we're not even number one in that. So there's a lot of things that, uh, yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it's true for, for very peculiar people in, 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 in that the U S is number one for very peculiar people, not <laughs> there's a, like even access, you know, that that's, I think since we live here and we have to, you know, whether we, we have, you know, some, um, issues with the country, the country that we have is the country we have. Right. right? So how to make it better. And, and I think the problem with people that I found is that when a pastor or someone, you know, a religious leader or uh, even a social commentator speaks in this terms, they feel offended because, oh, you're offending my nation. And uh, I always want to say this. Do you want the country to improve? Or is it okay the way it is because it benefits just you? The way it is. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a question we have to ask to those who think that a country is great. Well, great for who? And do we want a country to be great for everyone? Which is a question that we have to ask. But when we, we're not interested in answering or even pondering that second question, do we want the country to be good for all minorities, you know, people of color, uh, the LBTQI plus, for people, those are the questions we should be asking. And I think that's where you see the fear of so many people in this region in particular, like uh, here in, um, so to, to give you an example, one, one of my experiences here in Lodi that really has defined me in so many ways um, is the the fact that last fall, there was a, um, a report, an article written by uh, LA Times uh, reporter Anita Chavria. And Anita talked about 
she interviewed me and other leaders of the community, talked about how the Black Lives Matter movement and kind of like this uh, reckoning, racial uh, reckoning and asking for demanding justice for within the uh, law and order uh, and judicial uh, system in, in our region, in, our, in the country, um, the backlash that we all received. And th that article was actually part of the reason why I left uh, <laughs> my previous call. Uh, there was a lot of backlash uh, because of that uh, article, because uh, in part, the leadership, the some lay leaders, the religious leaders of that community of faith that I used to serve, were not ready for it. Mm. They, I mean, they may claim to be, you know, progressive or liberal, but um, not really. Now, when it comes to when the money is affected, mm. everybody becomes a, uh, a conservative. <laughs> right. <laughs> I want to. I want to touch on that, también, porque, you know, I know that we. As a nation, I saw it in 20, heavily, heavily. You know, I've seen it before, but I think 2016 is when I started focusing going back to church, right? I was away from the church because I just felt like it wasn't just in my time of my life. I just was just pushed away. I feel like I pushed it away. I went back 2016 and then, you know, obviously in the times of Trump's presidency. And in 2018 is when I seen the big push, especially within my own you know, uh, faith leaders. And I, I, I see it also, you know, throughout the nation and stay in the city, but it started with the, you know, with the separation of the family and the borders, like, mm -hmm. and the fact that, you know, I get it when the money is affecting, you don't want to talk about these issues. You become a conservative, but I, I'm, mm -hmm. you're one of the first pastors I've ever met. And, you know, that has said social justice first on all costs. Yeah. You know, I just, what does that look like for you now being uh, here in Lodi? Actually, you you live in Lodi, but but you also, um, um, I know you, you, you pastor in Stockton at the Lutheran Church. Mm -hmm. um, but what is the role for you, you know, especially, you know, with not only the Black Lives Matter, but especially with undocumented folks? I know, you in, just talk about your experience since COVID, you know, and how that's been impactful mm -hmm. for you. Well, that's a great question, Mark. I think uh, the challenge that I've seen for our leaders, religious leaders in this region uh, that serve or want to serve or claim to serve communities of color is that, you know, social justice is not an option. If, you, if it is an option for you, Two things are happening. Either you have the privilege of not being an option for you, or um, you know, you in terms of your consciousness, it's not part of who you are. Mm. But there's people who who are well aware that of what's going on, but they they know the cost. Mm -hmm. economic cost, political cost for their life, for their reputation, their livelihood, right? Livelihood. Uh, and that's a reality. I, I think I seen it with COVID-19. I think uh, many people, particularly in this region, leaders, uh, political and religious, have taken a many a neutral pos a post position on this issue. 
not trying to take you know one position or the other in particular to vaccinations um i think out of uh concern for not stepping on the wrong toes mm -hmm. but for the latinx community and for african-americans here in california i'll talk about the migrant community in particular the migrant community and Latinos in general, Latinos, you know, in general, we are 56% of the cases and 46 at the height last year of the death, 56% of the cases, 46% of the death. Now here in, in San Joaquin County, we are about 30% vaccinated. Mm. When the county is almost a bit more than 50% vaccinated. So we're behind. African-Americans, I believe, are a little behind us as well, 26, 27%. So what that tells you is that our people are being fed. And I, I'm gonna, I want to refer people to an article that uh, was talking about how in South, South Florida, I've seen it happen here too, um, the Spanish-speaking community was targeted with disinformation about the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And you have to wonder, okay, why, 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 why would someone do that? Now, if you're Latino and if you follow maybe a little bit of this conversation, you have to ask yourself, well, wait a minute, we're growing in numbers. I'm talking not just Latinos, but people of color. Mm -hmm. there, there, there are people who will benefit if uh, the demographic change doesn't happen because mm -hmm. they're out of fear, they're out of, out of hate, however, however you may want to call it. Um, and I think that's part of the problem, that this is real. This is not a joke. There are hateful people out there. Mm. And they're feeding misinformation. And then on top of that, you have politicians that are using the disinformation to kind of like pander. I am sure most of them are vaccinated, mm -hmm. but they're pandering to the ignorance. And I hate to say that word, but, you know... Um, in Spanish, we say al pan pan y al vino vino. <laughs> uh, to each is due, right? If it is, if it is, if if it sounds like and, and looks like and walks like a, a, a horse, maybe is a horse. Right. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think there's a sense in which we we have to call it like it is, and there's no room for. I think our people need the best information possible. I'm married to my, my spouse is a dentist. Before my spouse, uh, the Dr. Fabiola Ramos was a dentist. She studied uh, a master's degree in epidemiology and public health. Mm. So I am constantly reminded by her knowledge of more than 25 years yeah. of being a public health expert of the, she act, I mean, I have, I'll say this, uh, she actually told me everything that was going to happen and boof, exactly as she described it. Obviously, she's not the only one. All experts of public health and epidemiology have been saying the same thing right. about the waves and how we may experience a second one and how effective the vaccines would be. And kind of like explaining all the details of, about what, what it means to be vaccinated versus not being vaccinated mm -hmm. and how the vaccines work, how these vaccines are different. I mean, I, for that, you can uh, actually do an interview on, on my spouse yeah. and she can the community with those questions. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what, it co corresponds to me as a religious leader. What I would say is that what we need 
is to take a stand. We're talking about an issue of life and death. And I took a stand to vaccinate, to promote the vaccination, and to let my community know how important this was. Mm -hmm. And to let them know pastorally, lovingly, I mean, I, I haven't forced anybody to get vaccinated, but I have persuaded a lot of people to get vaccinated that otherwise would not have been vaccinated, specifically people of color, mostly migrant people right. who were, have been fed this information from peers, from the internet, from YouTube, from Instagram, I mean, from social media in general, from people who have no credentials whatsoever. And, and then I, 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 I'm very, you know, aware of, my mother was a lawyer and she always told me, if you're not an expert on, on a field, be humble to listen to the experts. Mm -hmm. All you can do is ask questions, but do not pretend that, oh, I did a research. No, you, you read stuff that you found on the internet. Maybe you read a book. Does it, it doesn't make you an expert. You cannot go toe-to-toe -to -toe with an expert on the field. Just like I don't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with my spouse about epidemiology. I'm not an expert on epidemiology right. or, or medical sciences. I'm, I know I took biology a long time ago. <laughs> I know a bit of chemistry because yeah. I'm a mechanical engineer, but I don't know bi uh, biochemistry. Yeah. Or, or, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not an expert on those issues. Um, so I, I, you have to defer to people who are. Right. Just like my spouse doesn't start arguing with me about the Bible or, yeah. you know, church policy or whatever. So I, I think, you know, we have to be humble. And I, that lack of humbleness, I have not seen it out there. It's like everybody feels they're an expert on this issue. Right. Especially on Facebook. You know, I had to create a whole new Facebook account. Because, you know, obviously it's, this dated back to before COVID, obviously. Mm -hmm. But I just realized how much negative thought there was outside of just even the Latino communities when it came to immigration. And everybody mm -hmm. felt like this was like the worst thing that was going to happen. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, I agree. Like um, this information has been a huge uh, had, had has had a huge impact on Nuestra Gente. You know, and yeah. I just want to close out and I just want to thank you for yeah. your time. But I want to hear from you. Just what does Pastor Nelson look like he's doing now? Like what is Pastor Nelson like his role 2021? You know, we are we it's crazy to think that we're only uh, October November, three more months away until 2022. But what does that look like for you as you know, as a faith leader here in the Central uh, Central Valley? Uh, well, I think with COVID being what it is, it's still a big part of what I have to work with. Right. Uh, making, because we need our people safe. We need our people uh, healthy. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. I would say this, along with that, uh, is the reality of the inequalities that the COVID-19 pandemic has unveiled for, for all of us to see. The inequalities of health, um, in a, of you know, health, um, um, healthcare, the job market, the housing, political um, power, economic power, 
and uh, even leadership in general, like leadership uh, uh, presence of people of color, vulnerable communities in positions of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those are issues that have always been with us. And but COVID-19, uh, I, I believe that in general, people in the U.S., we particularly people of color have lost about three years of life expectancy mm. because of COVID-19. So the effects of this pandemic has been felt most strongly by our people. Right. Uh, most of the people that I know that in, in the circles I move uh, that have either died or, or suffered from, from the pandemic are Latinx people, people of color. Um, and I think we have to really educate our people so that they can see the, so they see the need for being, uh, getting vaccinated, being healthy. Uh, because of the struggle ahead is sort not only surviving the pandemic, mm-hmm. but then how do we build up, build back some of the, let's say, um, uh, improvements or uh, achievements we were able to make prior to to the pandemic uh, 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 in our struggle for justice, in our struggle for for equality. Right. There's no doubt we, there's a setback mm-hmm. in, in, in some respects, uh, but I think uh, this, this, the, there's have been some gains uh, because of the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, you know, uh, some so many others, but obviously those those two in particular last year kind of like woke well, everyone uh, you know, got well, yeah, lit, lit a flame, flame for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I see myself, you know, working with, against racism, against uh, uh, homophobia, against, uh, you know, uh, anti-poor mm. uh, legislation, pro-immigrant uh, le- legislation. Uh, actually, I'm this coming Monday, I'm going to uh, Washington, D.C. Oh, congrats. Wow. What are you going to do over yeah, there? I'll be doing some lobby. I'll be participating in a, in a march and also being part of a delegation from the Gamalier Network oh, yeah. that's going to be advocating with some of our Congress people to uh, advocate for the uh, for a comprehensive the, the way we're calling it is uh, a complete and uh, you know, kind of like a comprehensive immigration reform mm-hmm. uh, but one that includes uh, farm workers DACA, TPS and also essential workers mm-hmm. beyond farm workers and also and I mean, basically, all 11 million undocumented, more than 11 million undocumented uh, people we have in this country. And the economic impact uh, of, just to maybe say a number, but to give you an idea, what doc, Dr. Uh, Raulino Hossa, which is a great uh, Chicano scholar yeah. who is at UCLA, good friend of mine, if he sees this, yeah. I prefer, uh, he, he, he'll he be in that delegation as well. Okay. And, uh, one of the things that he has found is that the positive impact of making 11 million people uh, citizens is $3.1 trillion wow. in the economy. <laughs> wow. That's so, so there's an economic uh, argument to make to do this. There's a moral one, which is the most important. But we're going with the numbers. 
for beyond the numbers. We're going with the moral imperative, the, the moral certainty that as Christians, in the case of uh, religious leaders, and uh, I, I'm Jewish, Muslims, other religious traditions um, have this in common, which is care for the vulnerable in, the, in their societies. In the religious language of the Bible is caring, care for the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. Mm. And the stranger obviously being the migrant. So I think that gives us, and, and the poor, of course, so that gives us the, the moral, uh, moral language, the moral uh, uh, foundation uh, to go to Congress and along with the moral argument, we have the economic argument. Right. Right. Which, you know, put them together. Uh, it makes sense. When you do the right thing, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it may be costly, but when you do the right thing, when all people benefit, then the long term cost of more, you know, like more Migra, more Hello and Order, more police. Right. So, so, Somewhere in the way society society is structured, you see the gains. Right. It's just that people only look at it this way. So. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much, so much for your time, Pastor Nelson. You know, I read a little bit about Father Romero, and you kind of have a little bit of in there. I bet you he was a, a like you read about him, and I'm sure you have a lot of. Um, wisdom through him as well but uh i just thank you so much for your time and i you know in the future we're gonna you know talk even more about local issues but you know i just wanted to put this out there because i know that so many people need to hear this interview need to hear about not only your life story and what the work you're doing but también the comunidad here because you are firsthand in here so i thank you for what you do and just man thank you so much for your time thank you marcos Sepan.